Hi, this is Panel Beater and this is the podcast of Triple R's Radiotherapy, a weekly radio show dedicated to health, medicine and well-being. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Radiotherapy's Facebook page. Everybody. Hi, Hi Dr. Dr. Nick. Yes, hello everybody. It's Dr. Nick here again. Welcome to Radiotherapy Live online and on podcast. Uh, today I'm joined in the studio by the master of the microphone, program presenter, producer of the podcast. It's the very alliterative panel beater. Good morning, panel beater. <laughs> That's quite a mouthful, uh, Dr. Nick. Well, I like all those P's. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, and your P's, you can hear, unlike the silent P of the psychotherapist of Prudence Deer, who's joining us morning. this morning. <laughs> Hi, Hello, Prudent. everyone. Um, you've, made the, you've made the move from sort of town to tree, haven't you? Yeah, I'm, I'm more regional, rural now, which yeah. is... Was that, Which is really nice. Was that a COVID thing or was that just a lifestyle no, choice? No, it's been, it's been on the plans. If anything, it got a bit delayed by COVID, so it took us a bit longer to really get organised and uh, to get the move done. But out there in the country amongst the sheep. <laughs> well, thank you very much for coming down to join us today. It's Privilege to have you in the studio. So today's show is actually one for the animal lovers out there. So yes, we're going to have dogs, cats, even llamas and mice will get their chance to shine as we explore the roles that animals play in humans' disease, health and research. So after the news, we'll be talking to Miss Diagnosis, who'll be taking a look at how the amazing sense of smell of dogs has been harnessed to help detect cancer, how llamas are helping us fight COVID, and why owning a cat might even make you more likely to ride a motorcycle. There's a thought. <laughs> Later in the show, Prudence Deer will be telling us all about dogs, why they became part of human society in the first place, how they can help with mental health, and also about the Golden Retriever Lifetime Study, which rejoices in the wonderful acronym GIRLS. That's right. Don't we love Golden Retrievers? Everyone loves a Golden Retriever. No, I can't wait. Have you seen that um, magnificent Netflix show with Ricky Gervais, the uh, show called Derek? Yes, you know that of one? course. Yes, so the, as Derek's, character says, the, Derek's character says, I loves all animals, they're my favouritists, except spiders. <laughs> <laughs> so all your favouritists, except spiders, will be coming up. But first, we have some news. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener-supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up the Triple R website to find out how. Panel Beater, um, you've been dredging up some news for us. I'm fascinated um, with what you've been talking about because obviously vaccination is such a hot topic at the moment and people who are a little more hesitant. So what have you got for us? Yeah, I've been following with interest the different uh, ways that people are thinking through how to get as many of us on board as possible with the vaccination. Mm -hmm. Obviously, it's well reported and documented that there's a certain um, bunch of uh, people among us who are not really up for it. Yeah. So what are the incentives or what are the, you know, um, different ways that uh, policy might be able to address this? And an interesting one came up during the week uh, from um, Professor um, David Haywood at RMIT, um, and he was f just floating the idea of a vax tax. 
Okay, so now hang on—is David Hayward an epidemiologist, a, a, a taxologist? What is what is he? Uh, professor of public policy. Okay, so vax tax. What's his idea? So it's—I guess—it's a counterpoint to the idea that you pay somebody. To, remember, elbow floated the idea of you pay people. Yeah, three hundred bucks. Three hundred bucks. Yep. So it's um, his thinking tends to go more along the lines of the way that we approach alcohol and cigarettes, mm-hmm. and the idea that we would. Um, uh, put a tax on, uh, levy um, collected through a Medicare levy, um, and unless you were vaccinated, you would be paying this levy, which might amount to something like two hundred, three hundred million dollars a year that could be returned into the health system. And of course, we do this in other ways, don't we? We tax people who don't take out private health insurance if they have a certain income. So That's right. it's, it's not unprecedented that use that <laughs> COVID word. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you know, in 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 a sense, it's got that kind of logic. Um, there's obviously still inevitably going to be resistance to it um, uh, for for many reasons that we'll know. The 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 response that um, David Haywood and the like uh, have to a resistance would be that just by being non-vaxxed, you're generating costs to the community. So um, we get to be presented with a decision of, you know, the costs that are borne by um, the number of people who aren't vaxxed uh, compared to the possible revenue plus the cost to the individual if you're Mm -hmm. deciding not to be vaxxed. Well, it sounds like very sensible. You see holes in that argument, Prudence? I'm I'm not very happy with it at all. I think it's, um, uh, I don't know, I think it's probably discriminatory in that, you know, where we're using money, which is some of our community and population have plenty of money, some of us don't. And it's actually the people are very often in the lower socioeconomic groups who are the ones that get penalised by this, either because they don't have, for example, access to sorts of services. They may have good reasons for not being vaccinated, but they don't perhaps. Can they get to the doctor to get the certificate or whatever? Um, so I don't know. I think there's there's uh, there's an inequity in here that uh, I'm I'm a little disturbed by, quite honestly. There's potential for it to be means tested, right? So, um, and, and and yeah, and that's often said about alcohol and tobacco. You know, these are the it's often said that um, these are the simple pleasures of a working man's life. You know, <laughs> um, and uh, why tax why tax that enjoyment? You know, the alcohol and cigarettes. So there is that um, so. Socioeconomic mm. matter, absolutely. Indeed, and but the and, but also the idea that if you are some way contributing to additional costs in the health service, you should be paying more. <clears throat> and I'm not sure that's kind of the basis of a kind of altruistic society yeah. where we do support those who may need more services. The corollary there is in you know it's it's still at the fringes, but uh, there is a, a cohort of argument that is around if you're not looking after yourself, if you are willfully eating poorly, not exercising, and you happen to um, not be well, then you shouldn't be... Um... Yeah, but who determines whether you're being willful or not? You know, I think we, we tend well, to I, make judgments about well, others. That's you, right. I, I tell you, Hugh, I'm, if, I'm going to allow the VAX tax if we have a motorbike tax for those people who are foolish enough to get on a motorbike and put themselves at massive risk of, of overburdening the health system. Uh, <laughs> it's a fascinating question, uh, Panel Vita. And, uh, do you know if, if this has been considered seriously at the higher levels? Oh, it's almost certainly not. (laughs) (laughs) No, no, no. no. I think the function of these sorts of thought pieces are really just to get the conversation alive so that that somewhere, you know, these outlying ideas um, move towards something we might notionally call... An acceptable centre. <laughs> we had enough trouble with the carbon tax. Yeah, don't that's right, exactly. <laughs> so, talk, talking about public policy, I'm going to talk a little bit about vaping and the change in reg- regulation about the availability of nicotine products for vaping. Uh, so, just a little bit of background. Um, we know that here in Australia,
Australia and around about 21,000 Australians die prematurely from smoking every year, which is more than all of the deaths from alcohol, prescription drugs, illicit drugs, road toll, HIV and suicide put together. So smoking, massive, massive cause of uh, premature death. We have about 2.5 million Australian smokers and we know that, uh, no one knows for sure, but the last National Drug Strategy survey suggested over half a million Australians are using vaping. And in countries where vaping is more readily available, we know that smoking cessation has galloped ahead. Um, But here in Australia, from the 1st of October, as you may be aware, if you want your nicotine products for vaping, you now have to have a prescription for a doctor. It's illegal to get your vaping products without a prescription. So, Prudence, do you support that one? Um, Well, yes, I I do, actually, because I'm not sure um, in terms of the statistics, if you like, I thought that vaping was no more effective smoking cessation aid than anything else. Um, And there certainly seems to be a lot of discussion around that actually vaping nicotine and when you look at somehow those vaping uh, products are marketed, they're marketed at young people, it's actually a gateway to tobacco usage. Mm -hmm. And I think, um, no, don't, let's not encourage it. Yeah, very real concerns, couldn't agree more with that. But however, in places like the UK and USA where vaping products are more readily available, mm-hmm. uh, there's been a two- to three-fold faster decline in smoking rates than there have been in well, Australia. Mm-hmm. So that, uh, it, it's, a, it's a bit of a harm minimisation argument. There's mm-hmm. certainly nothing um, wonderful about vaping. You're still becoming addicted to nicotine or continuing your nicotine addiction. But nicotine substitution therapies for smoking cessation mm-hmm. have been shown to be helpful and you're not getting all those thousands of, of polycyclic hydrocarbons that give you cancer. What do you reckon, panel, Peter? Yeah, a few things occur to me. I'm, I'm not, I've, I've never been sympathetic to the slippery slope argument that, that you know, the gateway drug stuff. Um, I'm kind of not there. But um, it might matter on what is the threshold for the script, you know. So I, I'm a, you know, pretty, I'm a fan of regulating things that go into our body. Um, but I'm not a fan of prohibiting them. So it might boil down to some of the um, fine print on, on what it takes to get that script. Yeah, well, you've got to go to a registered nicotine prescriber. Um, so I decided, for doing the detailed research for this show, I would go onto the TGA website and try and register myself. I fell at the first hurdle because, of course, I couldn't remember my login name or password. <laughs> <laughs> so, so that wasn't terribly successful. But the point has been made by the experts in this field, which certainly does not include me, um, but we currently have a situation where a product that is much safer is harder to get. A product that is infinitely more dangerous is freely available through 20,000 outlets yeah. around this country. Yeah. And when I went to have a look to see, well, where would people get it from? The TGA currently has prescribers of nicotine products listed on the website. And currently in, in Victoria, there are four. Well, that's listed. right. There's no logic to, to any of this in so many respects. I mean, if we look at the uh, impact of alcohol use in Australia, by any measure, if alcohol was invented tomorrow, it would not get... <laughs> you would not be able to walk up to your local 7-Eleven and go to the bottle shop. But the message for those who are using vaping products, um, if you want to continue to access your products legally, you will require a prescription. You may need to lean on your regular doctor to get themselves registered with the TGA um, or go online to have a look where you can legally get your prescriptions. Um, 
We'll be coming back after the news. Um, we'll be talking at the animal theme. We'll be getting that up and running. Um, so did you know that your pet dog could save your life just by sniffing your skin? Or indeed that a llama might save you from COVID? Um, so stay tuned to find out more when we talk with misdiagnosis. She'll be coming up right after these messages. You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R, exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics, and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform. On the phone now, we have our regular panellist, junior doctor, and all round media megastar, Miss Diagnosis. Good morning, Miss D. Good morning, Dr. Nick. It's a, it's a stellar intro. I don't mind being called a media megastar, but I don't think I'm quite there yet. <laughs> well, working away definitely into that celestial orbit. Um, you've, been, you've been looking at all manners, uh, animal and so on. And first up, we have, to, we have to nail down something. How are you going to pronounce that double L-A-M-A animal, which I call a llama? Well, so you call it llama, but I, I mean... The only way that I learned to pronounce it was the llama from Yokohama, Ichi Llama, from the TV show when I was a kid. <laughs> so, if anyone else remembers that, good on you. But that, I mean, that was how I always grew up pronouncing it, despite your sort of weird Nyama going on. Well, to be fair, the weirdness is that the double L, the L-A in Spanish, is pronounced as a Y, or if you happen to be in South America, as a Z. But anyway, we'll go with however you like to pronounce it. Do you want to start with llamas or dogs? You tell me. Let's start. We'll start with the llamas and I, I think the first thing that we need to um, sort of get out on with the llama is the llama actually has a name as well it's Fifi the llama that I want to talk about today <laughs> so, <cute. laughs> so yeah. Fifi is a llama from the Franklin Institute and Fifi produces something called nanobodies now do you know what nanobodies are Dr Nick? Uh, well I know what antibodies are I thought a nanobody was something that my grandma had yeah, I mean, close, but a nanobody is actually a llama's version of an antibody. So they're smaller molecules than antibodies, and they're a bit more simple in their structure. But the thing about nanobodies is where our own antibodies with their, with their sort of very, um, you know, intelligent uh, sort of way of being constructed, they're, they're quite a sophisticated little molecule, which makes them quite... They have to be produced in particular ways to bind to infections or viruses. Now, nanobodies, being a bit simpler, can bind more tightly and just a little bit less specifically. So these llama nanobodies, what they found in the Franklin Institute is when llamas are exposed to COVID, they produce these nanobodies, which are very specific to the COVID that virus itself and bind very, very tightly to it, mm-hmm. unlike some of our own antibodies, which need this sort of lock and key mechanism to bind. Now, the significance of this essentially is that these nanobodies can actually be synthesised. You can, you can pick the most specific of these nanobodies and you can put them into a nasal spray. Whoa. Okay. So and the it, idea of this is... Yeah, so you could put, oh, a bit of, could, could put a bit of llama juice into a nasal spray and protect me from COVID. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, I mean, that's the idea. That's the idea. So what they've shown in... And it's, it's only been in rodent studies so far, so no human studies yet is that if you take rats and you expose them to COVID, now these poor rats, they're probably getting COVID left, right and centre, you expose them to COVID and then you can spray the rats with this llama nanobody concoction. And what they find is the nanobodies bind so specifically to the COVID virus itself that the innate immunity from the rats are able to target the COVID virus much more rapidly and much more quickly 
and thereby destroy the virus itself and the rats get over COVID within about five to six days. So a couple of questions immediately occurred to me. These nanobodies that Fifi the llama can produce, is it specific to llamas, these nanobodies, or do other species produce nanobodies as well? Yeah, good question. So humans don't produce nantibodies, we produce antibodies. Um, and llamas, uh, so I don't actually know which other animals themselves produce nanobodies, but it's certainly something specific to llamas. They don't produce antibodies. And I wonder what they sort of proposed in this is that um, because they are these sort of smaller and slightly less sophisticated particles, they actually might be better at helping us target our own innate immunity, target COVID, the COVID virus. Um, so I'm not sure if they've tried this in other species, but it does seem like it's something that's specific to llamas themselves. And is this, now, the other thing... And sorry, is this, is this the idea that you would use it as a kind of vaccine in a preventative sense or as a treatment when, the, when someone's suffering from the early stages of the virus? So what they've hypothesised so far is using it um, as a nasal spray when someone is at risk of getting COVID. So mm -hmm. if you're going to be out and exposed to things, you could use this nasal spray, which should then give you the nanobodies. Now, they haven't done studies in how long they last or what kind of immunity this will confer over a long period of time. So I think it's... I don't think at this stage they're looking at using it as a vaccine, right. you know, as we're using our sort of vaccine. It's more of a, if you were to be exposed to COVID, these nanobodies might help you then fight off the virus itself. But these are also very early studies in okay. rodent models. Very, but very exciting concept that we might have a simpler molecule which can really help us target the virus. So look out for a, a Fifi Llama spray uh, coming to the pharmacy near you soon. Prudence, you've got yeah, a question. Just, well, it just went through my mind. So if we equip the police not with pepper sprays but with nanobody sprays, when when there were public protests, what? That would be interesting. It, we, we could vaccinate Yeah, maybe that would disperse the crowds even quicker. Yeah, I, I think in, yeah, instead of um, yeah, instead of pepper spray, instead of smoke bombs, we could have uh, llama nanobody bombs that go off and everyone inhales all the nanobodies and That's right. which is immunity. also rather more insidious as well yes. than that we could be going anywhere <laughs> and we could be getting vaccinated or uh, stay contaminated. Back, stay back, or we'll spray you with llama snot. Um, <laughs> well, we've got a public uh, health and a public order response all in one. Fantastic. Now let's let's move on a little bit. Uh, we know that uh, canines have an extraordinary sense of smell but um, you've been looking at how that can be used in a health sense tell us about that yeah that's right so I was looking at some of these I was actually looking at because we're doing this sort of uh, animal show I was looking a little bit at the cat versus dog debate and just as a, as a straw poll in the studio people dog people cat people or on the fence people Okay. Dogs, for dogs, sure. Dogs for prudence, panel beater? Dogs. Dogs, yeah. and, and, and I'll take anything that's furry and that I can stroke. I don't mind. Indiscriminate. Yeah, so, so you're, a, you're a llama person, Dr. Nick. Uh, I'm a llama um, dog so. cat. Not an axolotl person, but everything else. Um, so uh, looking at this debate, there's actually some really <laughs> interesting science behind why we might prefer dogs to cats, just in terms of how they actually protect us and look after us as animals. So we, I'll come back to cats just after this but if we're starting with dogs I was looking at these beautiful case studies and essentially the case studies are these, these lovely little examples that are published in the scientific literature about strange things that happen between animals and dogs and the first one that I was looking at was a 75 year old and his Alsatian who kept licking behind his right ear. Now has, do you know why he might be doing this Dr Lee? Well there could be some leftover food trapped behind the spectacle oh. lens that the dog's finding rather tasty. <laughs> Yeah, that's true. And then the other, the other thing that has been actually documented quite well in the scientific literature is that dogs are able to smell 
some cancers. Mm -hmm. Now, obviously, this is difficult because not all dogs are trained for this, and, and the scientific literature doesn't really go into which dogs are best for detecting which cancers. But what happened was this 75-year-old man went to see his GP, and he said, oh, my Alsatian keeps looking behind my right ear. I can't see behind my right ear, and I don't know what's going on. The doctor had a look and said, oh, it looks like there's a little bit of skin change. There may be something called a basal cell carcinoma. I'll take a sample. I'll send it off to the lab and, and we'll see what's there. So he saw a little nodule behind this man's ear. So they cut out a little sample of this nodule and they sent it off to the lab for testing. And, and lo and sorry, behold, I have was... to interrupt and say, so the Alsatian started it and then the lab followed it up. <laughs> yeah. oh, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's a whole lot of good boys sitting there sniffing the petri dishes. <laughs> um, lo and behold, what it showed was it was actually a malignant melanoma and not a typical-looking melanoma either. So one that both probably the patient wouldn't have recognised as something sinister. And even the doctors themselves thought it was potentially a basal cell carcinoma, not necessarily a melanoma. And they cut this melanoma out, and luckily it was still superficial enough that it didn't spread. Mm. So this, this man's alsatian basically saved his life. And that's a lovely story because what you're describing is what's called the amelanotic melanoma, one which doesn't have all the pigments in it, so much harder to spot and one of these things that we doctors are terrified of because they're so hard to diagnose. So clearly we all need an Alsatian in our consulting room. Exactly. And interestingly, the first case report of dogs smelling cancers came from 1989 and it was a Border Collie cross who was from repeatedly sniffing at its owner's leg, even through clothing. So it wasn't that, you know, it saw something there and it was licking it. It was through clothing, kept sniffing at the owner's leg. And the owner went in and similar, it was an, a, it was a, a um, what did you say it was? Oh, I can't remember a the word. Melanotic melanoma. <laughs> a melanotic melanoma that he had on his leg. And it was superficial as well and hadn't spread yet, so they were able to cut it out. Now, what they've looked at and what they've hypothesised is that dogs can actually smell uh, malignancy-specific volatile organic chemicals. So initially they were thinking, oh yeah, look, maybe there's a bit of necrosis there, so a bit of dead tissue, and what the dog is smelling is the difference between live tissue, which it can't eat, mm -hmm. and dead tissue, which might mean it's a snack for the dog. But they've gone beyond that now and said actually these volatile organic chemicals that are produced by cancer cells that dogs can smell. Now, there have been case studies, so it, at this stage it's all just case studies really, but they've got case studies of dogs detecting bladder cancer, breast cancer, colorectal cancer, lung cancer, and even ovarian and prostate cancer. Wow. Now, the, the thing that's very sweet about this is all of this has caused is uh, caused the scientific community to call for canine-specific training regimes, similar to dogs that are trained to sniff narcotics and explosives. Mm -hmm. They're thinking, well, maybe we can train these dogs to sniff out these volatile organic chemicals and then you can have a visit to your doctor. I'm slightly alarmed as to what we're going to have to train the dog to do to detect my prostate cancer, but perhaps... <laughs> yeah, we'll I agree with that. That's the other bit. So we've always known that dogs are good for us and you don't give us an extra reason, but um, there are also reasons why cats are not necessarily good for us. Do you want to tell us about that? Yeah, so Dr Nick, have you heard of something called Toxoplasma gondii? Yes, it's one of those wonderful words with two eyes at the end, gondii. Yes, I love Toxoplasma. Yeah. Mm. yeah, it sounds like something out of Lord of the Rings. Doesn't but it? It's really a parasite that actually reproduces in a cat's stomach. And it's a global estimate around 2 billion people worldwide have been infected with uh, Toxo, it's called Toxo for ease 
on the show. And, and, it, it, and I'm not... going to interrupt just for a second because um, I'm aware that this was a topic that was touched on in Doolittle's show when they mentioned that there was a, a study showing an increased relationship between psychosis and the disease schizophrenia and infection with toxoplasmosis. But you've got, uh, you've got an extension to that, haven't you? Yeah, yeah, that's right. And I, I think sort of the, the important thing to know with it is it, it's normally a self-limiting asymptomatic infection that we don't do anything about, we don't test for, and we don't treat unless it's the first time a woman who is pregnant has been infected, in which case there's a risk to the fetus. So that's the only time really that the medical world gets sort of excited about toxos. In a pregnant woman, it's the first time that she's been infected with it. But as they mentioned in Doolittle's show, there's been some very like, quite controversial new studies showing um, a link between developing psychosis and having a toxoplasmosis gondii infection. Now, I think um, the interesting thing that I wanted to bring up here was they've done some studies now in motorcyclists and also in traffic accidents, because the motorcyclists is one thing. There may be a whole lot of other reasons why people would go out and purchase a motorcycle, which might be due to underlying personality. But these traffic accident studies were really interesting because they could exclude things like people who are affected by alcohol and look at the accidents themselves and see whether the people were responsible for the accident. So, for example, you've been T-boned by someone, that's not your fault. Mm -hmm. But if you've run into someone or you've walked out in front of a car, that's something that you could have controlled and done differently. Yes. And what they found in these people who had been in these traffic accidents, this is a study done in Prague, is that they had a, they had a higher level of seroprevalence in the traffic accident group. Hang on, compared, seroprevalence uh, of? Seroprevalence of toxo okay. in the traffic accident group compared to the general population. So the group that were in accidents where they could have done something to prevent this, so whether that's you know, being in a car or walking out in front of traffic, something like that, compared to the general population, had a, a much higher seroprevalence of toxoplasmosis. They, they were, many more of them were infected with it than the general population, with a p-value of 0.0001, so really significant difference. So, and, and just to explain what, sort of what the sort of causal relationship here is, we know that toxoplasmosis infection in rodents makes them um, less risk-averse, so they're more likely to wander out in front of the um, cats that are trying to eat them. So there seems to be this weird kind of life cycle thing where um, cats give rodents toxoplasmosis to give it more chance for getting its dinner, and that this infection, at least in rodents, causes risk-taking behaviour. And now you're saying that uh, there's evidence that not only is it possibly associated with an increased risk of psychosis, but it's also associated with increased risk-taking and things like traffic accidents. Yeah, absolutely. So you, you, you're totally right. So with the way that it sort of works, these parasites really are, um, from the cat's point of view, fantastic for their prey because they make them much more riskier, so they'll sort of dart out in front of the cat when maybe they previously wouldn't, but they also slow their reaction times down. So these rats aren't able to sort of dodge around obstacles as easily as rats without toxo. And so all of this makes it much easier for the cats to go out and catch these rats. Now, it's happened, the same kind of thing is happening in humans. You get slower reaction times, is what they've hypothesised, as well as increase in risk-taking behaviour, which maybe means, from the cat's point of view, when the human goes to the supermarket, they buy that super expensive, tiny, <laughs> tiny tin of cat food for $6.50, even though that is not the optimum choice for the cat itself. 
they have this higher risk-taking from a financial point of view and slower reaction times to say, that's not the cat food that I need for the cat and I should just get that bulk by Aldi one. And lo and behold, what does the cat end up with but this delicious tiny portion of food? Which is very high-end evolutionary development. What do we know, though? You you mentioned that the study was based in Prague. So what do we know about, uh, you know, toxo infections in in people in Australia? Do we know anything about the prevalence of Yeah, so in Australia... Yeah, prevalence between 40 to 60%, depending on the area itself. So if you're in a high... So there are high prevalence and low prevalence yeah. areas. So high prevalence areas, things like apartment complexes where a lot of people have cats because it's transferred through the cat feces and people not washing their hands. So if you're, if you're in an area with a, you know, a shared communal garden, lots of cats, that kind of thing, and you're not washing your hands, you're in a higher prevalence area. But yeah, between 40 to 60% of the Australian population will have been exposed to it. So misdiagnosis time is almost upon us, but I have to ask you this question. If we're saying that around about half the population in Australia and probably anywhere in the world, 2 billion people, you said something like that, have toxoplasmosis, yep. and yet it can be associated with all sorts of quite significant issues. Um, that's a pretty scary message to send out into the into the wide world like that. I mean, what are people supposed to do with this information? I mean, are, are people can rush off to their doctors and ask for tests for toxoplasmosis and treatments. I mean, it, it, it's a pretty scary thought that 50% of people may be carrying a bug that causes all sorts of really quite serious complications. Yeah, it's a very good point, Dr Nick. I, I think at the end, what I was really interested with is, you know, especially with a lot of talk about immunity and you know, wanting your own immune system to fight things in COVID with people who don't want vaccines, is at the end of the day, you know, we are all made up of our gut microbiome and the parasites that are inside us that often we don't know about. And I think it's more just about being sensible. I mean, I don't know what you take away from this. I'm more of a dog person, that, so that's what I take away from it mostly. <laughs> you know, keep the canine to smell your melanoma. But it, it, there's no indication to treat toxos currently. Okay. So, so why there's an interest in um, animal products for removing sort of parasites and other things that uh, self-treatment might eliminate the toxo as well. Do go and get a bit trumpian on me here, but prudence too. So I think we'll, we'll sidestep that one. So I, I, I think that we'll take it as information that's um, curious and slightly unsettling, but at this stage, not something that people should be rushing out and either looking for diagnosis or treatment for. Misdiagnosis? Thank no, you. unless you're pregnant and unwell, that's the only time you should seek treatment for it. Okay, so we'll, we'll allow those groups to go and talk to their doctors. Everybody else just has to <laughs> take the cat back to the cattery and get themselves an axolotl instead. Uh, Misdiagnosis, thank you. Lovely to talk to you and hopefully have you in studio next time. Yes, looking forward to seeing you soon. Thank you very much. That was Misdiagnosis. Um, Shortly we'll be talking with our in-house panellist Prudence Deer moving from the feline to the canine. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener-supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up rrr.org.au to find out how. We've got Prudent Steer talking all matters canine. Where do you want to start? Wow, dogs, yes. Okay, aren't they just wonderful? And I think, um, I mean, there's a bit of history, but also I just came across quite a few pieces of work and research. There's a whole field now called canine science. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, that sort of makes a lot of contributions, I think, not only to like veterinary medicine, but actually to the way that we as humans interact with, with our dogs. And... 
Um, we have been kind of partnering with dogs for thousands, thousands yes. of years. Yeah, so how did it all start? Well, I think the best, under, best sort of explanation is around uh, <clears throat> wolves. Wolves are, mm-hmm. wolves are a large pack animals that hunt, and they are highly cooperative in the way that they do that, and they have quite organised hierarchies. Um, what it looks like happened is that some of those dogs, those wolves, have kind of moved even closer with human beings at various times and have actually developed a completely different sort of relationship. One that's, um, they're called, um, what, obligate um, symbionts. Oh, <coughs> obligate so, symbionts. So that furry creature I'm yeah. stroking at home is actually an obligate symbiont. <laughs> yes, which basically means uh, ultimately that the, the, the sort of common dog that we have as pets, so actually Canis uh, familiaris as opposed to Canis lupus, so which is the wolf, um, are dependent on us really for food. They're scavengers. The, the, the common sort of domestic dog is a scavenger and it scavenges actually around humans. I mean, if we put them out in the wild somewhere, <clears throat> they really don't survive very well. They can survive in urban sort of contexts because they find, you know, bits of Kentucky Fried Chicken or whatever else <laughs> lying around, and that's what they live on. So, yes, um, my, my understanding is that's where the, the dogs and the wolves, they do separate, is that, yeah. that uh, the, as these animals started hanging around human society, yeah. we almost selected out those that were more socialised and socialisable. Yeah. And, and I think, you know, there were, there, there, were, there were benefits for both. So, in other words, the dogs got food and they probably got some warmth because they could hang around the, uh, the campfires. And the humans had, um, had centuries, basically, you know, had guards. They were guards dogs they would warn of the approach of um you know other predators or or you know the, another tribe or whatever was going on so they were kind or of even a pack of wolves or even a pack of wolves <laughs> whether they're any good at for keeping them away is another matter um so they've we, we've become our lives have become quite intertwined and everywhere on the planet just about where humans are dogs are there's only one place there's one continent oh, antarctica there's no dogs in Antarctica anymore because they were banned in 1994, I think. And the concern there was around the non-native species in Antarctica and the risk of passing on diseases such as distemper or whatever to the native seals. So but no more huskies. But when you say they were banned, they weren't there naturally in the first place. They were place. never there naturally. We no, they were there. imported yeah. by, okay. yes, as, as huskies, sled dogs, so for, for okay. exploration and so on. Now, now, of course, dogs have been used in research and um, yeah, very, famous, <laughs> very famously Pavlov and his dogs. Yeah, look, I think so. I mean, I, I, I hope that name means something to some people. I mean, operant conditioning was kind of very well um, you know, explored and explained by the the by by Pavlov um, back you know at the beginning of the last century. You might have to explain operant conditioning. Well, basically, <laughs> this this all came around like um, what what he did was when whenever he fed the dogs. They rang a bell just beforehand or in association with that, that reward. And then they found a bit later on, if they just rang the bell, the dogs would show some signs such as salivation. Um, so it was like, OK, we've conditioned the dog to respond to a stimulus that it associates with some sort of either pleasure or could be some um, you know, um, punishment type reward. Um, actually... Uh, Pavlov actually got a got a Nobel Prize, but not for that. Oh. It was for he did a lot of work on the physiology of the digestive tract, and um, that's what he kind of researched, um, and that's when he, he got his uh, Nobel Prize for that. And that the, right? the other stuff <laughs> followed on. Um, I don't really want to go into that sort of research too much because I like dogs too much, but it kind of emphasises, I think, that you know. 
Pavlov, the name, is sort of like uh, known to a lot of people in the world. But the dogs, dogs were just dogs. From a research perspective, they were like objects that were, were and still are many often cases, that are used for a purpose mm-hmm. um, by humans. And um, you will not find in really any sort of scientific literature and publications really in much detail about the dogs you know it's like there were dogs and I think we mentioned it earlier about trying to work out what you know we're getting more information about well what breed or what size or what age none of that in there at all except for Leica Except for Leica, who went into space. I was, oh, agree well with that. done, panel, Peter. Yeah, so um, so yeah. I'm thinking about names, because obviously if we want to dehumanise populations, we take yeah. away their names and give them numbers. So and I, that went sort of hunting. Thing. I went hunting for Pavlov's dogs. Did Pavlov's dogs. dogs have any names? Yeah, they did. Now, not, now you, have to, you have to look, and you only find it in an appendix to some public, published work you know, for the names. I was quite stunned by how many there were, um, but they were not all of them either. So, it kind of, yeah, there's over 60 names in the list that I found. I'll just share a cu- you know a few with you. There's Arab. There's August. I love this one. There's Genghis Khan, um, <laughs> Diana, Murta, and uh, Zlode. Now that's six out of sixty, so that's ten percent. It really was the A to Z. Arab yeah, no, they go all the way through. That's right. I picked a few, but at least we've now publicly on Triple R acknowledged Pavlov's dogs. They've actually got some visibility there, and I so think that's the, really important. For any canines listening, you've been honoured. You have been honoured finally after about one hundred and fifty years or something. So you, you don't you don't dwell on Pavlov in this research. So tell us what you do want to dwell on. <laughs> well, yeah, look, I mean, it, it's again. It's, so some of that stuff was very much obviously about, but more understanding for for human health and well-being um so let's just look at there are they do do work um to look at the health and well-being of dogs and that perhaps takes us to the golden retriever lifetime study right? no, we just have to go back to that acronym God. because i just girls girls g-r-l-s yeah look they have recruited i think it's still in progress actually they've recruited three thousand golden retrievers they have to be purebred it's a bit you know a bit selective um it's it's being driven out of the united states of course um but they're following these dogs basically from birth through to their to the end of their life so they they their owners get questionnaires um, and the dogs get a veterinary check every year. Um, the, the objective is to get a better understanding of uh, some common cancers that golden retrievers uh, uh, are prone to. And, you know, in, in a way that we would do with humans is to look at all the kind of lifestyle factors, you know, how much exercise do they get, you know, what do they eat, what sort of environments are they in, and to see if they can actually work out some correlations as to why... You know what? What? What predisposing factors may may result in some of these uh, cancers developing? Which I guess will have a spin-off for, for humans as well. But uh, the the prime benefit I think for the outcomes is to better understanding of of dog health. And can I ask why golden retrievers? Is there something special about them? Are they seen as uh, representative they... of canines as a whole? What's no. Your... Well, I don't think I don't think they represent canines as a whole. But they're probably a good population around certain types of cancer. In other words, there is a prevalence for certain I think types of bone cancers and some sort of skin okay. cancers and so on. So, um, so it's good to know that someone somewhere is thinking about the health, that, uh, not the health benefits of dogs to the people, but the health of the dogs themselves. That there's something abs- kind of reassuring about that. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, 
you know, it, it, it does make a difference. And in terms of thinking about the health and well-being, again, we there are quite a few studies around where we've been looking at, you know, how dogs can help humans with anxiety and depression, for example. And, and the results can be a, a little bit mixed. And again, probably because they're not terribly well controlled around the dog. I mean, you know, we have we do have sort of trained type therapy dogs. We have dogs that go and visit people in, in hospitals or care um, settings. Um, but and and we may, for example, you know, run some tests on the humans and ask them how they feel. And it, but it, but I think many of us would just feel better having a dog around anyway. You know, we've probably got a pretty biased view of of <laughs> but, them. But it's important. It's not just feeling better because there's there's actually good hard science to show that some of the the chemicals I like to call them the sort of cuddle hormones, the sort of oxytocins yeah. and prolactins yeah. and a reduction in cortisol all occur when people interact with furry animals. Absolutely, and I think there is you know those those other elements which especially around things like loneliness that there's a companionship element we know that dogs and humans actually bond very well they bond in a way in a similar way to a parent child sort of bonding so there's an attachment that develops and certainly humans um, can experience a great sense of loss when when their pet dies yeah, I mean, it was interesting not so long ago, um, uh, somebody wrote, uh, Zoe Krupka, who's a, a writer and uh, a therapist in, here in Melbourne, wrote an article that talked about how the grief experienced by humans when they, when they lose their pet can be um, as intense, if not even more intense, than if they lost a human um, relative. So our attachments both to the dog can be quite intense and very beneficial, though, nevertheless. And I, I don't think there's any pet owner out there that would be at all surprised by that piece of information. I don't think so. I know I'd be. T- oh, I'm going to be mortified. <laughs> so Mine gets too old. But let's just talk about animals in healthcare settings because yeah. it seems to be increasingly common. I, um, Pre-COVID, when I was at the children's hospital um, visiting someone there, um, I was incredibly impressed by this uh, dog being walked around just yeah, in the common area and how kids could just come up and interact with this animal. Absolutely. Beautiful animal um, and clearly had an incredible effect. We, <laughs> we have a visiting cat at our waiting room um, in our general practice <laughs> who doesn't belong to us but thinks she does, like all cats. Uh, and, she just strolls, <laughs> and she just strolls in when suits her and uh, yeah. it changes the atmosphere immediately it does doesn't um, it and uh, the benefits of having the animal there but i have had patients quite reasonably say well you've got a dirty cat in here um, yeah. we've got dogs going into hospital settings how do we make sure that this is a safe thing Okay. Well, look, it is it is something that actually needs to be um, examined and sort of moderated through policies and protocols around uh, the animals, uh, for the patients, uh, for the staff and, and the environment. I mean, yes, you know, hospitals are very often, what, brightly lit, noisy, hard surfaces and have lots of hazards, first of all, for example, for a dog. I mean, food gets dropped on the floor, medications get dropped onto the floor, roll under the bed. You know, it's the sort of thing that if the dog wasn't particularly well trained and well managed at the time could 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 suffer some kind of injury. Um, their interactions with people, I mean, you, you've kind of, you know, we, we know that like kids love them. So the paediatric setting is great for animals, but also kids can be a little bit, kids get, more kids get bitten by dogs on the, and they get bitten on the face because of the way they interact with dogs. They don't necessarily understand the signals that the dog might give that it's not comfortable and they may be tempted to go and grab the dog and hug it in the way that they would their teddy bear. But, you know, a dog's got a, 
a few more teeth and uh, a little bit more autonomy. It's, it's worth actually just dwelling on that for a second because I remember doing some research on this many years ago when uh, our kids were babies and, people, and we had a cat and people said, oh, you'll have to keep the cat out of the mm. house because cats smother babies. And I thought, that just yeah. sounds like nonsense to me. That sounds like an My old wife. told me that. Yeah. So I actually went and did the research on that. And there is, uh, you'll be glad to hear, cat owners out there, there is no evidence that cats smother babies. Um, we actually got our cat because someone who was pregnant decided they had to get rid of the cat for fear of this. So we acquired a beautiful Burmese. And then all three of our kids grew up with the Burmese. There is no evidence that cats lie on babies to smother them. However, what people forget is that the trusted family dog is a risk to children. And this is not because there's something wrong with the dog. It's because they're a dog. And small children do not pick up the cues that dogs give to say, no, I don't like that. There are training programs. There are training programs for children and parents around how to understand. I mean, just for example, I mean, there is is a sort of a ladder of of responses that dogs, you know, Mm -hmm. classically show when they start to get anxious, when they're being stressed, and they send out signals well before they get to anything near biting. But, I mean, I was quite interested myself. It's like the the very first sort of signals they send are licking their nose and yawning. Yeah. Right. But it's, it's, it's an incredibly important message when people uh, have small children with dogs. The message is that it doesn't matter how trusted the family dog is or someone else's family dog. Do not leave your small child no, alone absolutely. with that creature because you as the adult will pick up the dog's warning signs, whereas the 18-month-old might not and might keep mm. pushing their eyes or ears and... That's where they get bitten. So yeah. sorry to sound all sort of about it, no, no, but it's, it's just incredibly thing. important. And it's, yeah. it's a big, it's a responsibility, I think, for parents to make sure that they do understand these signals. Because when your nice little dog is sitting there, and it's turned its head away and it's yawning, it's not looking all sweet and puppy like. It's actually saying, "I'm getting really stressed here, and I'm very unhappy." And if you've got it like on a harness or on a lead, and it can't actually go off and hide behind the sofa, you know, it may just, you know, then it's its anxiety will start to escalate, and it may actually strike out yeah yes so when i did this research there were no sign no no cases of cat smothering children but innumerable cases Absolutely. and every single time it was oh my god it was the most trusted dog i could never believe it would do it so yeah. uh, don't want to demonize the dog it's not the dog's fault it's the dog being a dog uh, but adults please yeah. please please do not leave your small children alone with dogs anyway yeah <laughs> and well it's also it's about putting dogs into situations where they may not be very happy yeah. in other words again we use dogs whether it's a family pet whether it's a, a therapy dog whether it's a you know a guide dog or a support dog in some way um, they are trained, um, but yes, they can be put into situations. And really, we, I suppose we do have to ask the question, well, you know, have they, are they consenting so to it, this? So I want to come to canine consent in a second, yeah. but you still haven't answered the question for me. How do we make sure that this dog is okay in, for instance, a hospital setting? I mean, there have yeah. been programs where dogs get up on people's beds and they stroke them. Right. How are they allowed in a hospital? They're not um, spreading it's, disease all over the place yeah. uh, when totally. a hospital yes, is supposed I mean, to be look, clean all that. They've got to yeah. be clean. So it's about training and it's about standards. In other words, you know, the, the care institutions have to be really clear on what is required. The dogs have to be appropriately trained and managed and vet checked and everything else and their handlers have to be appropriately trained and really understand what the services they're providing and the dog you know and there has to be some real clarity around 
for example, when when is the when can you tell the dog's had enough? You know, what is it? Is the dog allowed into the wards for an hour and then then they just given a break because they have to give be given breaks. You know, they need toilet breaks. They need to go and get some water. Well, I want to know: Do they get a wash and a polish before they go in? <laughs> you know, are well, they cleaned? Are so. they sanitised? Well, that's a good question, and they would. Yeah, I mean, I think there's something to be said for that, isn't there? They need to be a, a suitable kind of breed, for example, maybe maybe that also doesn't shed uh, a lot of uh, you know. Um, uh, skin and um, other bits and pieces so that which can potentially be allergenic to to patients and staff so there's there's quite a responsibility it's not simply a case that's right of like oh I've got a very sweet dog and I'm going to take it um, to the local uh, children's hospital for their kids to play with now accepting that time is nearly upon us but you did mention this what to me is a really important and slightly unusual question I hadn't even thought about it before but that question of canine consent, consent. yeah look I mean it's a big ethical discussion really uh, you may remember actually I think last year I spoke a bit about where they were doing um, MRIs on dogs and mm. uh, they trained the dog to walk into the MRI and Which lie down so just to, is any, if anyone out there has not had an MRI they are incredibly noisy it's a yep. distressing thing to do for any Anyone, right. because the sound is just yeah. it's really they, scary. They gave them earphones and things and yeah. everything else but yeah the dogs were trained um, and I think basically in that sort of circumstance they did have a bit of a choice in other words they could just say I'm not doing this and get up they were not restrained like in any physical way um, but I think you know it's about whether we give animals choice and there's been I was reading so there's there are ways that you can actually give your dog a choice that they can actually say they can say yes and no to things. Mm-hmm. Um, now, obviously, one thing is it's like there are you know with with aversive sort of training, it's a bit like well, you've got a choice: you bark or you get an electric shock. Which one do you want? Now, that's not choice, right? That's that's aversive training, and we don't we don't approve of that. But um, you know, the idea that well, do you want this or that? Could be a you know a different case, right? So, do you want to go out now, or do you want to sit on the sofa? I mean, these might be options, and um, you know, dogs can make those sorts of decisions. So, their participation initially in any form of sort of usage, let's put it that way, where we want them to do something for our benefit, um, they could like we could create circumstances in which it's possible they could actually agree or disagree at that moment in time. And are there like any that? laws that cover canine consent? No, sorry, were you looking for me about the laws? No, not about the laws. I'm just um, listening to this with great interest. The um, activists around factory farming and so on talk about consent and animals, um, especially you know, um, cows and, and sheep and, and what have you, about once you start recognising sentience, the question of consent becomes pertinent. Yeah, look, and I mean, around sort of agricultural use of animals, you know, there, there have been these, I've, I found these five freedoms. So it's like, a, you know, a bill of rights for animals, which was, you know, mm. freedom from hunger and thirst, freedom from discomfort, freedom from pain, injury or disease, freedom from fear and distress and freedom to express normal behaviours. Mm. Now, all of those, I mean, yeah, if you just said, I mean, in the farming context, it would be hard to... It would be hard to be sure that they were meeting all of those five. That's the argument. They, they're not they being met. That's right. <laughs> you know, certainly yeah. not in terms of fear and distress, yeah. I would suggest. Yeah, that's right. And the idea that, you know, they, that animals have a right to lead what is for them a natural life. Now, yeah. now for the, you know, the, 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 the domestic dog. Obviously, they kind of live a somewhat hybrid life with us and they possibly choose to live with us 
although actually, as I said right at the beginning, they couldn't, wouldn't survive without us. So what choice have they got? Well, of course, over COVID, most of them chose to be bought for about $9,000 each. I think it's fascinating. What you haven't answered for me, the question I really need you knowing know. is, is there any point in apologising to your dog when you stand on their tail by mistake? I'm going <laughs> yes. to put that question out of there because whenever I do it and a dog yelps, I go, oh, I'm terribly sorry, and I give them a cuddle. I think, does the dog have any idea that I'm apologising? So, <laughs> well, if uh, any it makes you feel better, though, doesn't it? It you makes feel me better. feel better. That's but right. uh, um, that, that's all we have time for today. Um, so, if any listener knows about apologies to dogs, let us know. It's a huge thank you to the multi-talented Dr. Nick T. Misdiagnosis on the phone, Prudent Steer and Panel Beater here in the studio. I've been Dr. Nick. Thanks for listening. Hi. This is Panel Beater. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Radio Therapy, a weekly radio show dedicated to health, medicine, and well-being. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast. Feel free to get in touch with us via Radio Therapy's Facebook page.